Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. It's a very familiar story. We know it either as the story of the prodigal son or the story of the waiting father. Jesus told it, and it's recorded in Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter. A younger son who, in the terminology of that day, essentially said, Dad, drop dead, I want my inheritance. He got it, Dad left, left, let him go, and he headed off into a far country where he squandered the money that he had been given. He ultimately comes staggering home down the lane, reciting in his mind a speech he has put together which basically says, Dad, give me a chance to earn my way back into the family. We pick it up right at that point in Luke's Gospel 15, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, that is the prodigal son, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. So we're in a back-to-school series, blackboard and lecture and reading and assignments. Welcome back to school. We started this dealing with family relationships. So I'm going to have a quiz for you right now, but it's not one where you're going to have to write things down. I just want to hear it from you. So first of all, let me just remind you that last week we built a model for family relationships 
built on the work of Jack and Judith Balswick in their book, The Family, A Christian Perspective on the Contemporary Home. And this week we add to it the work of the late Dennis Guernsey in really an exceptional little book entitled The Family Covenant. Family Covenant, little book, first published back in 1984, Uh, has gone out of print, back into print and out of print, but well worth the time, you'll find that his thinking about covenant will be very informative to what we're talking about here today. So we built this model, and we built it in a circular fashion because these concepts interact with each other and influence each other, but they all begin right up here, God's relationship with his family, with a concept called, oh, friends, Uh, Our class is in trouble (laughs) with a concept called covenant, exactly. Covenant that is based on God's unconditional love for his family. Now, covenant has embedded within it a certain reality. If it involves sinful human beings, and that reality is that something sooner or later will go wrong, exactly. No matter how well-intentioned, something will go wrong. And when that something goes wrong, God says to his family, grace is available. You don't have to get what you deserve. In fact, you get something far, far better than anything you could ever deserve. Grace is the fertile soil in which forgiveness grows and and bears fruit. But we also, as part of God's family, don't have to always stay in the same rut, drive into the same pothole. Change is available, and God says that change is available through something called empowerment. My spirit will enter into you, will live in you, and will empower you to grow and to become more than you ever thought possible by the power of my spirit. Now, you'll remember we said, if you know you're loved unconditionally, forgiven when you're failed, and strengthened to grow and change, Something else grows out of that, and that is intimacy. I want to know a God like that, to be with a God like that, to be in that God's family. And that this all continues to grow ever more deeply into a more mature covenant relationship. That's what we talked about last week. And then we ended with a question. The question is, that's nice. That's wonderful. Why doesn't that work in my family? Why isn't some of your families like that? Where does it go wrong? Now, the truth is, part of it may go wrong because we don't access the grace that God offers us. And we don't spend time on our knees and And in his word, in an accountability relationships where we can be empowered to grow and develop. Sometimes it goes wrong because of realities like that. But there is another way in which it goes wrong on which I want to focus today. Another way in which it goes wrong is underlined by the parable of the waiting father and the prodigal son. It is also underlined by a concept from geometry. Remember your class in geometry? Don't worry, I don't either. (laughs) 
I don't know what I'm talking about here, so I called a dear friend of mine this week named Richard Peverini, and I said, Richard, you've got to help me because all these people are smarter than I am, and I don't want to stand up there and look like a fool. Richard was very helpful. But the reality is it's a very simple concept. So let's say we go out here on the lawn. We find a flat place on the lawn out here, and we shoot off into the, into the sky, up into the sky, two rockets. These two rockets are side by side, and as we eyeball it with the naked human eye, we say, those two rockets are exactly parallel to each other. They're exactly parallel. Which means, as they shoot up into the sky, the further out they get, as you watch them, then you're watching with binoculars, they stay on the same trajectory, same distance from each other, right? Right? <laughs> okay. However, there's a problem. And here's the problem. What looks to the naked human eye like parallel trajectories actually is not. Because they slightly deviate from each other. You can't tell it by looking at it. But if you were to carefully measure it, you would know. So when those rockets shoot off into space... On slightly deviated trajectories, what happens? When you looked at them at 1,000 feet, a mile, 5 miles, 10 miles through a telescope, what happens? They diverge, right? They get further and further apart. So that what at ground level to the naked eye looked like exact parallel trajectories actually was not. You can't tell it here, but wow, can you tell it there. That's very helpful to us here. And the reason is because there is another concept on which we found our relationships, on which we build our relationships. It's a concept that's very similar to covenant. When you look at them with the naked human eye, they look exactly parallel to each other. In fact, we sometimes use the terms interchangeably. They both have to do with with things like relationships and commitments and, and boundaries and growth. They have to do with all kinds of things that are very similar. And so when we look at it with the naked human eye, we think those two are the same. But in fact, they are not the same. So what is that concept? It's a concept called contract. Contract. Contract has to do with relationships. It has to do with agreements. It has to do with pacts and promises. It has to do with boundaries and rules. It has to do with so many things that are similar to covenant that we tend to think they're the same thing. In some ways, they are very similar, but in one key way, they're dramatically different. And that is that covenant is based on unconditional love insofar as that is humanly possible. Contract is based on performance. Plain and simple performance. As long as you are performing in accord with what the contract was, praise the Lord and pass the grits or the tortillas or whatever. We're all good, copacetic. But when somebody violates part of the agreement, suddenly you begin to see that these are headed 
in very different directions. Now understand, contracts are part of our life, legal part of our life. They need to be part of our life. You have contracts all over in your life. That little credit card-sized card you carry in your wallet called a driver's license, that's a contract with the state of California. It's a contract that says you will train and you will get good enough to drive so you don't endanger others. You'll drive within the speed limits. You will be safe. You won't drink and drive, etc. That's our part of the agreement. Their part of the agreement is we will be sure we work on all the highways at 1 a.m. so you can't get anywhere and we will not have enough. No. Their part of the agreement is we'll make sure you have highways to drive on and safe and we'll have people who patrol the highway. We have a contract. As long as we're both fulfilling our part of the bargain, all's well. Or suppose I decide that I'm going to uh, rent an apartment from Byron and Carolyn Moe. So we sit down and, and, and we draw up the agreement and we fill it in. And I say, okay, I'll pay Byron and Carolyn Moe uh, $1,500 a month on the first of the month. And they will keep it up and they will, uh, they'll be responsible for mowing the lawn, painting the house. I'll be responsible for not holding any wild university church parties or subletting to other people. We have that agreement. As long as we both fulfill our end of the bargain, all is well. However. When you apply contractual concepts to relationships of affinity and affection, spouses, parents and children, siblings, cousins, etc., when you bring contractual thinking into that kind of emotionally bound relationship, there is a reality here that was also true here. You remember in covenant, if it includes a sinful human being, guaranteed something will go wrong. When you apply contract to those same kinds of relationships, it is also guaranteed that something will go wrong. Guaranteed. And there you begin to see the difference. Because in a covenantal relationship, when something goes wrong, you get grace. In a contractual relationship, contract is a legal term, when something goes wrong, you get law. And if forgiveness grows in the soil of grace, punishment grows in the soil of law. And so when somebody violates our emotional contract, We punish emotionally. And we find very creative ways to do that with each other. I can remember a man in a marriage who punished by silence. Just wouldn't talk. She did something that upset him, wouldn't talk. Day, three days, five days, week, two weeks, nothing. She was at the point of just pulling out every hair frustration. What he was in essence saying was, you did something I didn't want you to do, and I'm going to punish you to make sure you don't do it again. We have creative ways of emotionally punishing each other. Really? Well, tonight is not your lucky night. For that matter, neither this month or this decade. You know, punishing 
emotionally. The most egregious example of this that I have ever seen happened. I was trying to figure this out 32, 33, 31 years ago. I don't remember, but in that range. I'd just been teaching a little while here on the campus, religion courses. I was teaching one of the very demanding programs, pardon me, of our university. And I noticed one day John wasn't in class. Well, that happens. Wasn't worried. Next week, John wasn't in class. Boy, two weeks in a row. Next week, John wasn't in class. So now I'm asking questions. Now I'm going around to the fellow students. Hey, what happened to, what did I call him? John. What happened to John? What happened to John? Well, didn't you hear he got kicked out? He, pardon me? He got kicked, kicked out. They weren't that far from graduation. Kicked out of the program? Yeah, gone, done, finished. So I went to see the person in charge of that program and just asked some questions because, after all, he was my student. He said, we caught him cheating, egregiously cheating. And so he's been removed from the program fully. I said, wow, that's pretty heavy. And then he said, we will not graduate a healthcare professional from Loma Linda University knowing that he's cheating. What's going to happen when they're out in their professional life? I said, I get that. I understand that. But it wasn't that part that really hit me. Because I went back, and, and, and John's friends in class talked with me. And they said, you know, John didn't even want to be in this program. So what are you talking about? Didn't want to be in this program. His parents said he had to become a, you fill in the blank. That's what he would be. But I don't, no, no, this is what you will be. Later, you want to do something different? Yeah, maybe so, I don't know. But right now, this is what you're going to be. So he's here studying under all this pressure in a hard program, something he's not even really interested in. But that wasn't all of it. Because his parents also said, you will graduate in the top 10% of the class. And he just caved under the pressure trying to study something that didn't all that much interest him, that he didn't enjoy. You've got to be at the top of the class, and he just started cheating. The worst moment came when his parents found out he had been dismissed. They said, don't come home. We don't have a son. Most egregious experience I've ever seen of a contractual approach to family relationships this is what the quid pro quo is. You do what we want you to do, and you'll get our love and acceptance. You don't do that, you will not get our love and acceptance. Emotional punishment followed. Now, the truth is, even in contractual families, we desire change, right? I mean, with Byron and Carolyn over here, if I suddenly quit paying, paying the rent, Byron, he says to Carolyn, hey, hey, Randy didn't pay the rent this month. Carolyn just said what? Yeah, and that's it. But the truth is, it's easier to get me to start paying the rent than it is to evict me. Just fix this. Just fix it. You can fix it, then we're back in a good place. So change is still desired. But because of the quality of the relationship, because of the ethos, the texture of a relationship that says you'll only get my love and warmth if, then the way to seeking change is not through empowerment. 
the way that these kinds of relationships tend to seek change is through manipulation and coercion. We'll find ways to make you do what we want you to do. In other words, the change that is coming is not for your good, but for ours. doesn't have to do whether it's your gift set, your interest set, your desire. No, 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 no. This is what we want you to do. And so we will manipulate you to get you to do it. Some year, in fact, quite a few years ago, I was at my sister's house, and on, on her coffee table she had a book. I started paging through the book. This was in the years before I became pretty obsessive about keeping track of of citations and names and all the rest, so I don't have those. I wish I did. But it was a book about LBJ. Not LeBron James, Lyndon Baines Johnson, president. And it was stories told by different of his staffers and cabinet members and aides. Now Johnson, LBJ, was known for being a large man, for being an uncouth man, for being a man very willing to use his power in manipulative ways. I remember reading a story in the book by one of the, one of the staff members who says, we were at the Johnson Ranch in Texas. We were all in the pool swimming, all the aides and staffers, and the president was there in the pool with us. And the president approached me. I was there treading water in the pool. He approached me, and he said, listen, I'm starting a new program, whatever it was, XYZ, and I'd like you to head it. And the, the, the aide said, I, I didn't want to do that. But, I mean, it's the president of the United States. How do you say no? And so he said, I was like, oh, Mr. President, that, that's such an honor. I can't believe you would think of me. Uh, thank you so much. But, you know, I, I really have a lot on my plate. with it. No, 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 I want you to lead it. Well, I mean, and he said this went back and forth, back and forth, as he's trying to figure out some way to say no. And the president, on the other hand, is like a dog to a bone. He's not letting it go. And the, the staffer said, I finally realized i got to get out of this pool or I'm going to drown. He's like, I'm treading water and trying to figure out ways to say no. And he's just after me and after me. Finally, I caved in and I said, oh, okay, Mr. President, I'll do that. He said, great, thank you. And we got out of the pool immediately. And it was only then, he said, that I realized, because I'd been so focused on this, that I realized that he had positioned me where the pool floor slopes. He was standing on the ground, and I was treading water. And he was determined to keep me there until I said yes or drowned. <laughs> that is manipulation. Sadly, we do those kinds of things in our intimate relationships. I've seen parents turn a cold shoulder on a surprisingly young child who is craving for their love, their warmth, their care. But because something didn't satisfy them, it's a cold shoulder. Very manipulative. Now, I want you to think about this. If I have a sense at some level in my relationship that I have to measure up or I don't get love and care and warmth and nurture and those things... And when I blow it, I'm going to get punished. And change comes through manipulation. You suppose this is going to be present? Not on your life. What I will experience instead of intimacy is growing distance. And that's where you begin to see these two rockets increasingly separate. What was inches now becomes miles. As we live out the realities 
of what the foundation of the relationship leads to. Sometimes family people talk about this as a fixed distance. It's as though those spouses in bed have a wall that has been erected between them, cold and impenetrable. That kind of distance creates a lot of pain. There is a desire for something else. It's being with your kids and knowing we can't talk about certain things. There's a distance here. It's painful because we're wired for certain intimate relationships. Now let's say somebody, a couple, in this space, distance, comes to church last Sabbath and hears about, you know, this this couple there studying Loma Linda, the in-laws gave them money, Dad, go down to Laguna Niguel to the Ritz-Carl, they had a great weekend as they came back, they had all this intimacy, let's try that. And so they go spend the weekend together, alone, and have a terrible weekend, filled with conflict and tears and yelling and pain. See, what happened? Well, what happened is if the distance created in that marriage is growing out of all of these other realities, that distance is not fixed by proximity. It's exacerbated by proximity. Now the kids are out of the way, the demands, the pets, everything's out of the way. Now it's just you and me, and now that pain overflows. So the question becomes, How do we fix this? How do we fix it? I want to suggest to you that the way we repair that by the grace of God is very simple and very hard. Very simple, but very hard. You'll need the power of God to do it. So why do I say it's simple? Because growing from contract-based to covenant-based, comes when you answer and live out the answer of yes to a whole list of questions. So as you, as you ask these questions, if you say yes, 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 and you live that out, you will move to a covenantally-based relationship. So what are the questions? They're questions like this. Am I willing to love when my family member is imperfect? Am I willing to accept them at their worst? Am I willing to push well beyond what would normally say give up and quit? Am I willing to give forgiveness when I'd rather judge? Am I willing to embrace them with warmth and acceptance when I want to reject them and punish them? In other words, am I willing to love unconditionally insofar as is humanly possible. If you say yes, 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 and if the Spirit of God empowers you, you will grow from contract to covenant. And when you have a covenant at the basis of your relationship, the trajectory will take you to this destination rather than that. Because a covenant, God with his family us with ours, insofar as we human beings can do it, is based on unconditional love. A contract 
ties love and acceptance and warmth and all those good things to your performance. Covenant ties it to love. So there are two or three questions that arise about this point. First question is this. So Randy, you keep talking about unconditional love. God with his family, us as far as we humans can do it with others. Does that mean that in covenant relationships anything goes? We can still be loved? Yes and no. So think about it. Covenant relationships have boundaries. Boundaries are required for relationships to thrive. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai. God is going to ratify the covenant with them. Read it in Exodus 20. The chapter begins by saying, God's words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, I have brought you to myself. Remember last week, the divine initiative? I've loved you with an everlasting love. I have reached out and brought you to myself. Unconditional love. Do you remember the next words? You will have no other gods besides me. Friends, that's a boundary. That's a very clear boundary. In other words, if you start including others in this, it threatens everything. So, you will be loved no matter what you do. But violations of the boundary threaten not God's covenantal love for you. What they threaten are the blessings and the benefits that come in that relationship. Maybe a way to illustrate it would be with, with two parents who have a 20, 25-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid, lives at home, has gotten into drugs, and they're saying, you cannot bring drugs into this house. And what if they say to him, you know what, Johnny? If you bring drugs into this house, that will never change our love for you. But it will change your address. You will no longer live here. What's being communicated is we will love you no matter what happens. But in order to get the blessings and the benefits that come from being in this relationship, there are boundaries. There are limits. Everything goes, you'll still be loved. If anything happens... You threaten the things that God wants to give you. Joy, peace, and rest, forgiveness, hope, a future. Those things get threatened, not because he doesn't love you. Second question that arises. We'll say more about this in a coming week, but just a brief blurb here. So Randy, we're on a university campus. How does this apply to dating relationships? Well, I'll give you my thought on that. Dating relationships, especially as they begin and start to grow, need to be contractual, not covenantal. Covenantal from the first or second date, that's country music. That ain't scripture. <laughs> and that is not healthy. In other words, during your dating time, it is the time to evaluate performance. 
Is this a person of their word? Do they tell the truth? Do they have an upstanding character? Do they get places, generally speaking, on time? Can I count on them? I mean, all these questions. And if you're asking these questions and the answer is no, 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 then in the most loving Christian sort of way, you kick them to the curb (laughs) and start over. More to come on that. But they should begin here. If you keep answering questions, yes, person of their word, person of character, contributes to the relationship, et cetera, et cetera, you can begin to much more safely grow in covenantal directions. And finally, Randy, we got contracts all over our family. Contract is quid pro quo. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. They're everywhere. Does that mean we're messed up? No, it does not. We do too. Everybody does. Contracts can be healthy, provided they are not the foundation of the relationship and they don't get tied to covenantal realities like love, acceptance, warmth, forgiveness, nurture, etc. When contracts are tied to certain kinds of behaviors, duties, chores, achievements, all the rest, hey, more power to you. Just think of the kinds of contracts we have. You know, like, like um, you cook it, I'll clean it. That's a contract. I really like the other contract better, so you cook it and I'll eat it. <laughs> but, yeah, we won't go there. Um, or, or, or what about this one? Uh, babe, you go get your degree. I'll work to support us. And when you finish, you work to support us, and I'll get my degree. That's a contract, quid pro quo. And if you both abide by it, it can be a healthy approach to life. Kid says, Dad, I want Froyo. Absolutely, we'll go get Froyo. Just as soon as you're done with your piano practice, your room is clean. Quid pro quo, you do that, I'll do this. Healthy? It can be, absolutely. Depending on what gets tied to it. So one illustration. Our daughter Miranda, we had dinner with her and her husband last night. Her husband, I mean, something's wrong with that. She's like eight years old. <laughs> no, it just goes so fast, friends. It goes so fast. But let's go back. Let's suppose she's eight years old still. Our daughter loved swimming, just loved swimming. And so let's say at eight years old, Miranda and I are, are walking through Target, okay? And suddenly she says, Daddy, 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 look at that, look at that. And there's a mask. Snorkel fin set. She says, Daddy, Daddy, will you get that for me? And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, hmm. Because I don't want to always be saying yes and I don't want to always be saying no. So I'm kind of evaluating this. And she detects that evaluation as weakness. And so she, she goes, goes in for the kill. Daddy, that's my favorite color. I think God wanted me to have this. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're pulling that card on me? So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to, and suddenly I come up with an idea like a man going under. I say, okay, okay, Miranda, here's what we're going to do. You have swimming lessons this afternoon. When you can swim all the way across the pool with no help from your instructor, we'll come and get this. No, Daddy, I want it now. No, 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 no. When you can be, Daddy, oh, no. And she finally realized, okay, he's serious. So she says, okay. But I'm going to do it today. Well, all right. If you can do it today, we'll come back and get it today. That's a contract, right? That's quid pro quo. You do that, I'll do this. So we go to Drayson. 
Swimming lesson begins. There comes that point when they got to swim. And here she comes, man. She's just like, you know, and she's halfway across. She's three-quarters. And I'm like, oh, great. Did I bring my wallet? And, and you know, she's about right here. She's almost there when suddenly she panics. And she starts, and the instructor immediately grabs her. And the last four or five feet takes her to the edge. She gets there. She jumps out of the pool, soaking wet, comes running toward me. Now, right there, I want you to hit pause. Because I want to give you two possible endings to that scenario. Okay? Ending number one, you hit play. She comes running up, says, Daddy, Daddy, did you see that? Throws her arms around my legs, gets me soaking wet. I, did you see what I did? I said, I saw it. That was so great. I give her a hug. That, that was wonderful. Let's go get No, 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 no. You almost made it. Try it again. You, you, you probably do it this time. But that was our agreement. <sighs> okay, and so she goes running off. Now, is Miranda going to be in therapy at 25 getting over that? I would suggest no. Kids need to hear no. When was the last time you were around a child who never heard no? Did you enjoy that a lot? <laughs> that sounds like a testimony you could give. Okay, ending number two, you hit play again. This ending, she jumps out of the water, comes running toward me. Daddy, daddy. I said, no, 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 no. Don't you be getting me wet, hugging on me. Get in there. You got to do it. Don't expect to come to me and get all this stuff, love and all that stuff. You get in and you do it. She going to be in therapy at 25 over that? She will be because whenever we tie contractual obligations to covenantal blessings People suffer. There are some things you can never earn, no matter how much you try. Because even if you get them after you've tried to earn them, they feel bitter because they weren't given covenantally. Things like love and grace, acceptance, forgiveness, warmth, nurture, belonging, all those covenantal blessings, you cannot earn those. They have to be gifts or it messes you up so here stands the father and there's the prodigal and there's the older brother here's what I would suggest to you both the prodigal and the older brother have a contractual understanding of their home the prodigal, having blown it, comes home saying, Dad, let me earn my way back in. Give me a chance. I'll do better. I'll do the best. Let me earn my way back into your love, acceptance, and forgiveness. That's contractual thinking. The older brother says, earn your way back in. I have earned my way. I've earned my way with every planting season, with every harvest season, with every night when dad cried himself to sleep. I have been here. I earned it. Contractual thinking. And the father? The father says, my dear boys, my dear boys, you can never earn this because this is my gift to you. I'm pouring it all out on you, and I've given it all to you. 
Neither of you is compromised because this family is covenantal. And by grace, you can belong. Three assignments this week. Pardon me, two assignments. Two assignments. Assignment number one, this afternoon, 4 o'clock. Over in the new building, we're going to have a covenant conversation. A little bit of talking, but mostly this afternoon Q&A. Join us. And assignment number two, go home, find a family member who does not deserve your love and grace. And remembering that boundaries are healthy parts of covenantal relationships, you're not letting go of that, say to them, I love you, I forgive you, and I yearn for a meaningful connection with you because I want us to be a covenantal family. God of grace, we yearn for the Father's embrace and acceptance whether we've been in the far country or at home. Let us understand we never earn it. We just receive it. And then let us take the grace you have given us and extend it to others. In the name of Jesus, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.